Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the Buker and Friends podcast. Here is your host. Let's send it over to Rick Buker. Rick Buker. Welcome to yet another coronavirus episode of Buker Friendless, subsidiary of Buker and Friends and part of the United Wecast Network. I'm Rick Buker. You can see me on FS1, you can hear me on Fox Sports Radio, and you can read me on Bleacher Report. You can also follow me on both Twitter and Instagram at Rick Buecher. I'm a lot of places. But there's only one place you can hear just me talking about what I exclusively feel are the most important or interesting topics in the sports world, primarily but not exclusively involving the NBA. And that is here. All right, theme of today's podcast, inspired by what we're seeing in the NBA bubble playoffs, is all about LeBron James and Russell Westbrook and the gift or curse of crazy athleticism. Let me explain. There are two themes that seem to be uh, emanating from the bubble. One is the awfulness of Russ Westbrook. And on the other hand, the excellence, especially at the ripe old age of 35, of LeBron James. And I was struck by the both converging and diverging uh, paths of their careers and how we all too often define a player's attitude about winning by the efficiency of their numbers. And I'm going to blame a lot of this on the analytics movement, but The exact opposite is probably true more often than not. And I'll explain. I mean, number one, Russell Westbrook. Most people have been critical, at least up until game three, about his overall performance. And the question is, why is he shooting so much when he's missing? And why isn't he trying to play better at this time of the year? He's not playing winning basketball. And I would respectfully disagree. I think he's at least attempting to play winning basketball. Has he been making shots? No. But has he been putting all the energy that he possibly can in trying to win in spite of the fact that his shots are not falling? Yes. Through the first five games of the playoffs, he's averaged 8.2 rebounds a game. 
as a shooting guard. That is phenomenal. And before you wise asses say he's rebounding his own misses, less than a quarter of those have come off the offensive glass. So on the defensive end, he is rebounding. And yes, I'm going to get to the fact that we have uh, not the same uh, height on the floor these days, but still, Russ has been working hard to rebound, no question about it. He's also been working hard to take shots that he's capable of making. I know a lot of people are going to point to uh, his misses and his three-point shooting percentage. The reality is he has attempted the lowest number of three-pointers this year than he has in the last eight years. It's not like he's continuing to jack them. If they leave you wide open in certain situations with the shot clock short, you have no choice but to take them, and he and he does. I can't. I'm not going to fault him for that. Uh, more than forty percent of his shots are at the rim this season. That's we're talking about the the entire space of the floor, and it's broken down uh, at the rim, three to ten feet, ten to sixteen feet, sixteen out to the three point arc, and then obviously threes. And that forty percent at the rim is the highest since his rookie year. So he understands that he's not shooting well, that his jump shot is not falling, and he's trying to remedy that as best he can. It takes a lot of energy to constantly get to the rim. It takes work. The easy way out is to take jump shots. Uh, what I like about him especially is he continues to do that throughout the game, and that's really, really hard. For those who are of the mind that a great player when his shot is not falling, should just stop shooting. The notion is kind of laughable. Uh, and, it's, and, it, and it is a pure analytics approach to the game. The reality is Russ averages or averaged 27 points a game for the Houston Rockets. If his shot is not falling, it's not, uh, you know what, I just don't have it today. Hey, Jeff Green, can you pick me up? Austin Rivers, can you pick me up? No. That's the abdication of your responsibility. You don't shoot, score, and do it all year long. And then you get to the playoffs and your shot's not falling and you just stop shooting. It doesn't work that way. I know it makes for a nicer box score and probably avoids the heat of people criticizing. But the truth is you haven't even tried to win. I'd much rather see a star player take 25 shots and only make five of them than he decides it's not his day and he's going to take 10. Which kind of brings me to LeBron James because I would dare say that anybody watching him play is going to say, well, he's just all about winning. He's only about winning when he actually has, or he feels, that he has a chance to win. And it's why his numbers are so consistently efficient. Why you never see him have a bad box score. You ever wondered about that? You ever wondered why we don't see bad shooting nights from LeBron James? Because when he's not shooting well, he stops shooting. Game one loss, perfect example. He went seven for 15, two for seven from three, five free throw attempts, 
in 36 and a half minutes. I know I'm throwing a lot of numbers at you and that can make most people's eyes glaze over, particularly on a podcast. But I have a point here. 7 for 15, 2 for 7, 5 free throw attempts, 36 and a half minutes. That ain't a whole lot of shots for LeBron James. LeBron averaged 19 and a half shots during the regular season. Now at the end of game one, the Rockets led end of the third quarter, 85-79. Game very winnable. LeBron took exactly three shots in the fourth quarter and didn't shoot a single free throw. No attempt made to even manufacture points. And I think it's fair to say at this point, he's a better jump shooter. He's a better all-around shooter than Russell Westbrook. Did not try to take over the game in the fourth quarter. And I would say this is just an outlier who knows if I hadn't seen it before from him. Times where it's just so curious that LeBron has decided for whatever reason, this is not a gettable game. So why why expend the energy or attempt the shots? It's, it is a mystery to me. Can't argue with his success. But the times when he decides... And I've look, I've been told he's very aware. He checks the box score at halftime. He's very conscious of his stats. He's very conscious of being efficient. Maybe he understands that being judged by the analytics crew is it's always going to give him a safe haven. But nonetheless, I need my best players to line it up and take those shots. And if they make them terrific, if they miss them, hey, it was one of those days. It's when they shirk that responsibility after being willing to accept it all year long that uh, loses me. Which brings me to one of my grievances about how the game is covered in general today and particularly, I think, in the bubble. The, the broadcast partners, by and large, have the loudest voices when it comes to how we perceive not only the NBA, but the actors, the players down in, in the bubble and how they're performing and what the themes of the bubble are. I was reminded of this by the montage, I'm sure you've seen it, by TNT, I believe it's TNT, a montage on LeBron. And it ends with Chris Webber saying, it must be so fun to play with LeBron James. The power and the influence of that is really profound because it creates a certainty about something that is hardly certain. I can cite as many examples of how it's not that fun to play with LeBron as I can examples of why I'm sure that it is. There's, it's a back and forth. Lonzo Ball, Josh Hart, the young guys last year, Brandon Ingram, I'm sure they would tell you that it's not always fun to play with LeBron. I would tell, I guarantee you there's guys on this year's team who would tell you it's not always fun to play with LeBron. Now, he is a benevolent superstar, no question. Loves to set guys up, uh, looks out for guys. He's He has matured into uh, a good team guy. I'm still not sure that I'd call him a leader, but certainly... Uh, a guy who who shows that he cares about his teammates uh, 
and tries to make them better on the court. But as others have said, he sucks the oxygen out of the room. Some of it's not his fault. And we often talk about the intelligence of a player. And LeBron is often talked about as having this amazing basketball IQ. Well, IQ, particularly basketball IQ, can come in a lot of different forms. So can normal IQ. If it comes to remembering plays or or coverages or the X's and O's, I have no doubt, I, I get the sense that LeBron is very, very intelligent when it comes to all that. His execution and his discipline and his decision-making is not always intelligent. And so we, I think we confuse the two. The truth is, when it comes to time and score, he often makes bad decisions. There are times where he tries to make plays that either don't need to be made or are too high risk for the circumstance. And, and granted, understand, this is easy for me to armchair quarterback. I'm just saying that when we talk about really smart players, intelligent players, if you give me Rajon Rondo's intelligence or LeBron James's intelligence when it comes to running a team, uh, Rondo is at least one level above as far as understanding what has to happen, when it has to happen, who it needs to go to. I think maybe LeBron understands it. He just he takes the easy way out sometimes. And that is one of the negative effects of being so incredibly athletic. Same with Russell Westbrook. Russell Westbrook, his decision-making has never really evolved. Some of that may be the system that he played in Oklahoma City for all those years, where it was basically, we're going to play defense, and then KD and Russ are going to attack, and we're going to play off of that attack. Now that he's having to play more of a complementary role, it comes down to being efficient and making smart decisions with more limited touches and opportunities. And he has struggled. He struggled with Paul George in trying to defer there, and he has struggled at times with James Harden. We've, we've all seen it. I give him credit in that he has tried to make the adjustment. He simply hasn't been able to. A great deal of that comes from being pound for pound, fastest, strongest guy in the league. He could go by guys. He could do it time and time again, and eventually the numbers would work in his favor. But I dare say if you asked anybody right now, would you take a Malcolm Brogdon or a Fred Van Vliet over Russell Westbrook? I would say most coaches, most teams... Would, would go that direction. And it's not just a matter of age. It's efficiency. Now, obviously, they don't have the same strength. They don't have the same speed. They don't have the same vertical. And so as a result, they've had to learn how to be efficient. They've learned how to play, play the game. Russ knows how to play the game at one speed. And I've talked to guys who have played with him. Corey Brewer, great example. He knew how to play with him because he knew how to play with a player of that speed. But 
Anybody who doesn't, it's an adjustment. And understand, you are trying to play off of him. Stephen Adams told me the same thing. Like, had to come to the understanding, what, Russ is going to play at one pace, and you got to figure out a way to adjust to the way that he's playing. Well, now, Russ is in Houston. Now he's having to make the adjustments for the first time in his career. That Hence the, the issues that he's having. But back to the idea of the media in the bubble creating storylines and perceptions that may not necessarily be true. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As I said, these, these, what, what is happening now is we're taking these clips from the games and building commercials and advertisements for future games off of them. And those are played over and over again. And I'm looking at this not from the, the basketball fans' perspective, but from the mainstream sports fans' perspective, who that's the info that they're seeing more of than anything else. So whether it's, it's C-Web or the play-by-play announcers, the clips of statements made by them in the course of a game and then used in advertisements for upcoming games played over and over leave an imprint made by who? The experts of the game? I dare say you're not going to hear Stan Van Gundy's voice when they play one when they do one of those montages cuz Stan is going to take a measured approach to what he's seeing for the most part. The reality is that many of these pronouncements are made by play-by-play announcers caught up in the moment. And they're just doing their jobs. I don't blame them. But if you extract that statement and then you use it as a universal statement of fact and play it over and over again, it takes on a meaning I'm not sure was ever intended. And again, I think the, the, the hardcore, true basketball fan, NBA fan, understands that distinction. I also believe there's a lot of people out there that love the game, and especially in this time and place, where people aren't looking for information that challenges what they think. They're looking for information that validates what they already think. And don't really want to see anything that may go counter to that. That's that's the society that we're living in right now. So if somebody says Jimmy Butler is a superstar or it must be fun to play with LeBron James and you're a LeBron James fan, you're just eating that up. And that's proof positive. I told you LeBron was a good guy. Don't tell me about what happened last year with the with the young Lakers or what happened any other place in Cleveland when he got dissatisfied? Don't don't give me any of that. 
Because didn't we just hear it? Didn't we hear it from Chris Webber? Didn't he play in the league? Yeah, that ultimately is what happened. One of the other things that I noticed about the difference between Russell Westbrook and LeBron James, because I, I, in, in many ways they remind me of each other in terms of just incredibly physically gifted for the game in basketball in particular, but for sport athleticism in general. And how Russell's athleticism has taken him one direction where it doesn't seem like he's evolved. And LeBron's has. And at least part of that, and I don't want this to sound like I'm taking something away from LeBron James. Because what Jay Williams said about him being Robin when he went to Miami and then growing into being Batman was absolutely true. Anybody who was around those teams in those years knows for a fact that it was Dwayne Wade's team and LeBron James. I mean, look, fact is they went to Miami. They went into a system that Dwayne Wade already knew. Uh, By all accounts, Dwayne Wade was as much of a recruiter to get Chris Bosh and LeBron to come down and play under Pat and Eric Spolstra, Pat Riley, that is, as anybody. Uh, It was Wade County, literally. So that's how it was the first year. And then they lost to Dallas. And Dwayne Wade, as much of wanting to be the guy, understood that at that point in his career, for where he was and where LeBron was, for them to win a championship, LeBron was going to have to play a bigger role. And he was going to have to put that responsibility on LeBron, whether it was because of their friendship, whatever it might have been. LeBron wasn't going to naturally grab that. Wade had to convince him to take it. Here, I'm giving it to you. And by the end of the year, he did. It was still touch and go, but LeBron made some plays down the stretch against Miami when it when it mattered most. Still a little shaky at the free throw line. I remember distinctly. I was working sideline. I remember those, those moments. But I believe his, his scream at the end was that he'd finally broken through. He'd been that guy at the end of the game. I'm not talking when he, against Detroit, when he he was on a run and uh, Detroit kept mixing up their defenses and there was they were debating whether they doubled him or not and, and LeBron just got it going and, and tore them up. I'm talking about when it was touch and go, closeout game to win a championship. LeBron stepped up and delivered. And that was the first definitive time with everything on the line that he did that. So Dwayne Wade was right in handing over the keys to the car. That is also where his and Russ's careers began to diverge. And some of that is because LeBron found a way to continue to evolve, to take what he learned in Miami and then take it to Cleveland, and now take it to L.A. And Russ has never experienced that. He never had a Pat Riley. 
He never had a Miami Heat system where he could learn what the championship formula is all about. All that said, I can't help but feel that at least another contributing factor to why their careers have gone in different directions is because of how the game has evolved. Russell Westbrook is going to get into the Hall of Fame. And he'll get there as much because he averaged a triple-double, what, two years running? First to do it since Oscar Robertson? Then he will for the overall success of his respective teams. But that's that's the notch in his belt, the triple-doubles, that will put him over the top, that makes him a lock-solid Hall of Famer, in spite of anything else, and deservedly so. The same element that generated Westbrook's ability to average that triple-double, which is the reduction in overall size of NBA teams and how the game is played, is the same element that has fueled LeBron James being in year 17 and being the dominant force that he is. If you go back and look at the roster of the Cleveland Cavaliers, LeBron's rookie year, you will find 10 players listed on the roster that year that are taller than LeBron James. LeBron James as a rookie was actually listed as a shooting guard and being six foot eight. The Cleveland Cavaliers that year had, count them, five centers on their roster. Now, these were not all these guys were on the roster all year long, but in total, Tony Batie, Zadrunas Elgalskis, Desaga Najap, uh, Jelani McCoy, Bruno Sundoff, all listed as centers. They even had a guy, Chris Mim, who was listed as a power forward who was seven feet tall. Fast forward to this year's Lakers squad. You know how many players are taller than LeBron James on the current Lakers? That would be a total of five. Not ten, half of ten. Five. Dwight Howard, Anthony Davis, JaVale McGee, and it includes two two-way players who never play. Giannis's brother, Kostas Antetokounmpo, and Devante Kekuk. So it's really three players. Dwight, AD, and JaVale. And then you look at the teams that they're playing against. The Blazers, we considered them being particularly big. And yet, they only had two players who played that were taller than LeBron when it came down to it. Yusuf Nurkic and Hassan Whiteside. Zach Collins played the first game, got hurt, he was out. The only other player taller than LeBron on the Blazers roster Moses Brown, two-way player, didn't play. And of course, the Rockets play small ball. They not only play small ball, they don't have a choice. Tyson Chandler is the only player on their roster taller than LeBron James. And he has yet to play in the series. Hasn't played much all year. You've got Robert Covington, who's 6'7", and Jeff Green, who's 6'8", listed as the Rockets' centers. P.J. Tucker at 6'5", has played a lot of center, but he is technically listed 
as a power forward. So what's the point of all this? The point is that the game has shifted in a way that has truly benefited LeBron. Funniest part for me is that he's now listed as a point guard when he's an inch taller and he's playing below the free throw line in these playoffs as much as I've ever seen him play below the free throw line. And why not? He has a size advantage. The game has shrunk. And as a result, LeBron has become a greater mismatch than ever. If uh, credit to him has improved his three-point shooting, has developed a mid-range game. Without question, he's, he's put the work in. Still doesn't have much of a post game, but because there's so little size on the floor, he can play bully ball. It doesn't take footwork to get to where he needs to go to open things up for other players, for his teammates. And so where the shift in the game which I don't know that he, I mean, he's truly a genius if he anticipated this. I don't know that anybody could have. Thank you, Warriors, for changing the game that dramatically. Thank you, Draymond Green. But where it's benefited LeBron, it has clearly undermined Russ Westbrook because three-point shooting is now the name of the game for any point guard. Have to have that on lockdown. Have to be able to shoot at the very minimum 35%. Doesn't matter how strong, athletic you are. Doesn't matter. And he can't take advantage the way that LeBron can because of that difference in size. I would be interested to measure just how fast LeBron is at 35 compared to, say, seven, eight years ago. There's no way he's as quick laterally as he once was. I think open court, straight line, might be pretty damn close. Big thing is, it's his physicality. He's not going by guys so much as they can't, he bodies them up. They can't do anything about it. And that's where it allows him to continue to look fast. But he's getting so much done below the free throw line, and simply shooting over guys, even from range. There's a huge difference between having somebody who can challenge your shot and knowing that you can step into it and always have a clear view. We're seeing that with Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry in the series against Boston. Those shots are being contested in a way that They weren't previously, and it's made a huge difference. Meanwhile, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have the same clear view that LeBron James has in taking their shots. Pascal Siakam is a guy that I expected, because of his size, would be able to counter whatever they lost with Van Vliet and Lowry. Honestly, OG Ananobi has been more impressive to me in getting things done than Siakam. Doesn't mean he can't get there. But quite clearly, he is not there yet. Speaking of the Raptors, they were my pick to come out of the East. Even though I had concerns after watching Boston and Toronto play earlier in the bubble and had questions about how they were going to be able to counter the length 
of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, particularly with Fred Van Bleet and Kyle Lowry. But I thought that they would be able to mix and match, and I certainly thought that Marcus Gasol would outplay Daniel Tice. That has been even, and Serge Ibaka has not really been a factor. I thought that between Ibaka and OG and Pascal, that they would have the bodies to be able to make things difficult on Tatum and Brown and find a way to shake Fred and Kyle free. That has not happened. And even after the series started, I thought, you know what, if these are close games, then the Raptors' uh, execution and their experience under pressure is going to win out. That has not happened to this point. I'm recording this where five games into the series, the Celtics are leading 3-2. Surely, if the Raptors can keep games close, they have a chance. But they haven't been able to do that in two of the five. And they even lost one of the close games. And I just never expected that to happen. So I am not uh, anticipating that the Raptors are going to represent the East. One reason that I thought they would is because of their experience But what we're seeing and what I did not read correctly is the fact that without fans, young players with limited playoff experience are being able to play huge roles. That certainly goes for the Miami Heat with Tyler Harrow and Duncan Robinson uh, and even Bam Adebayo. I mean, that is a young, relatively young Miami Heat team with very little Uh, collective experience playing together in the playoffs in big games and yet you wouldn't know it by the way they've played the crowd the lack of travel the just the if you've ever been in a playoff city uh, the the buzz in the city walking down the street it, it there's an atmosphere that for someone who's never been in it can be draining and distracting. And there is none of that in the bubble, which is why we're seeing these young players be so dynamic. And it will be interesting to see the value that they carry once we get outside of the bubble. Is this going to be an experience that's going to create confidence in them that they will carry to them once we get back to arenas, hopefully with full stands and uh, hostile crowds and all of that? Or will it be a shock to the system and they'll have to go through that learning curve all over again? Difficult to tell. But the essence of this podcast really was looking at at Westbrook, who, and watching him over the last couple of years, people have gotten really down on him. He's trying to make the adjustment and he is having to make a massive adjustment, in part because he's no longer playing in Oklahoma City, and even when he was, he was playing with a star in Paul George that he tried to accommodate in much the same way he tried to accommodate KD, and now playing in Houston, where it is James Harden's show, and he's trying to be efficient in a way that he's never been asked to before. On the other hand, we have LeBron James, who is with his fourth team, if you count Cleveland twice, fourth team trying to get to a finals nine finals appearances and counting and has been able to look at the landscape and basically build a team that fits what he needs last year's team 
or all of its relative success up till Christmas Day was not really built for him. He needs veteran players, complementary players, who can excel without the ball in their hands. That's why Deion Waiters doesn't really work with LeBron James. One other factor, though, for his sustained excellence is the fact that the league has gotten smaller. And as a result, LeBron James and his combination of size and speed has only loomed larger. That does it for yet another coronavirus episode of Buker Friendless. Please do me a favor, take a minute, rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. In the next episode, I will be joined by either Will Blackman or one of my FS1 NFL colleagues to do a preview of the NFL season, along with a look at Giannis Antetokounmpo and where he may be headed and the coaching carousel and where it stops for Billy Donovan. All of that in the next podcast. In the meantime, please stay safe out there. And as always, thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.